We are streaming live and this is Game Changers with me, Vicki Abelson, and my guest today is my old friend, Steve Costell. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm doing good. I have to do some creative stuff because we're on Facebook and so it, it does weird things. So I am going to see it doesn't take us public. I'm going to take us public and uh, we're going to chat a little bit while I do that. Um, so you had a session today. What, what, what were you sessioning? Uh, the band we're doing a record of we're doing two records at the same time and one is uh wow. one is um all new material we just got out of jackson studio last week and we're working on that and then we're doing a second record which is uh really the the biggest of the hit songs that that danny and waddy wrote um so it's like a covers record but that they wrote so you know, somebody's baby, werewolves of London, all that. So we 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 work on that today. That sounds amazing. Does the album have a title yet? No, I think no. no. But you guys have like new music dropping all the time. It's pretty incredible. So what's the what's the most recent thing that people can actually go and purchase right now? We did an EP that came out about a month ago called uh, Can't Stop Progress. Pretty fantastic. That's out, that's available. Yeah, everything you guys do uh, is pretty fantastic. Um, I'm waiting to see if we're being joined yet uh, because there's an interesting phenomenon that Facebook does now with Zoom and they limit, um, yes, okay, a couple people are starting to join. So we'll, we'll give people a chance to find, ah, people are just starting to find us now. There you go. We like when that happens. Um, so, Steve, I, I ask everybody this because I don't know if you know, but in COVID, I started going live every day because just for myself for a connection and also for everybody else who was kind of stuck at home and not doing anything. When you when COVID hit, I know you guys had just done a, a, a ship or something. You, um, and I remember Wadi was really nervous about going because COVID was already kind of a thing. Yeah, how, how was that for you? I mean, were you anxious as things were starting? Well, yeah, we, we had a, a scare on the boat. They, they, we were what happened? To, well, we were supposed to, uh, the, the, the cruise, it's called the Rock Legends Cruise. And we had, it's a great lineup last time. It was Roger Daltrey and Don Felder and Supertramp and all these people. So it's supposed to go to the Cayman Islands and then you have a day off and you, and they take you to the island and you can swim. So we get there and they said, uh, there's a medical emergency, we can't get off the boat. And so I'm obviously figured, okay, so someone's got COVID on the boat. Oh. And, then yeah. we saw, and then we saw them taking the person off the boat. Oh God. It turns out the guy had a heart attack. So we were the, only cruise out that I know of at that time that did not get a bunch of COVID cases somehow. Wow. But, and yet there were a few Jews on there. You guys is what I'm talking there about. There were at least four Jews on that. <laughs> there had to be some, some COVID concerns. <laughs> so how much work did you have to give up when COVID, because weren't you guys supposed to go back to Japan? You were going oh, somewhere. A lot. A, a lot. lot. A lot. Yeah. I mean, not to mention that my studio, I closed it down. I, I wouldn't work with anyone. So what did you do in the worst days of COVID when we were in lockdown? 
Well, I, I mean, aside from losing the work and the right. money that comes along with work, uh, the two things that were, that happened during the time that were actually great for me and for us was the, the right before COVID hit, mm -hmm. the band put all of our business thing together. We got our great management. We got a great record company. We got a great marketing person. We got a great public publicist. We got right. So so all the business thing got in place. If it hadn't, I I don't know what would have happened. But because it was all in place and there was a record company financing videos and so on, we right. just kept doing stuff. And actually, honestly, I think we would not have made the advances because if COVID hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. There was a Lyle Lovett tour that got canceled. There was a Phil Collins tour, a Stevie Nicks tour, all these things. So we wouldn't have had the opportunity. We were together, albeit online. Oh, because different members would have been off on different tours. So you wouldn't have been able to work together. Yeah. So instead of having one band meeting every two months, we had one a week on Zoom. We still do. Uh, so a lot got accomplished. So the, from the band point of view, uh, you know, I mean, I don't wish the COVID on any uh, human being or society, but we actually, I think, flourished during it. Um, from personally, I, I, you know, I'm a practicer and I practice a lot of things. I mean, and I, so I, I actually enjoyed the time of not having to, having to decide, oh, my friend's playing, should I go see it? Or should I take this gig or not take this? To just not have to decide any of that for a year mm -hmm. and to be able to practice guitar. And I, I picked up, the, you know, I haven't played really serious classical guitar in 25 years and to wow. pick that back up and, um, and read and, and meditate and do all the things I do and work out all the time. So I just got very sort of insulated in my own creative world. And the band was was had a lot to do with the band. And since the studio's here, a lot of it. But so weren't you guys for a long time doing everything in parts on Zoom and stuff? You you weren't meeting in person from no, the first no. eight months until we got vaccinated. We did not meet in person. That's not true. We did. Uh, we self quarantined and did two um, live stream shows. Yes, I saw those shows. They were both terrific. Where but we although all... it was very weird that you didn't have an audience there to applaud after the songs. But we all said, stay home for two weeks, get tested, and we'll go. So we did that twice. But most of the stuff we did was remote. Wadi and I mixed two records from our respective studios. You know. Wow. Uh, so. And so what was it like? when you were able to finally come together and, and play together. That must have been amazing after all those months. It was so, we had a rehearsal finally uh, before we went into Jackson's studio. We rehearsed for a week. And to walk in the room with no masks and, and order hot dogs and pizza and and hang, it was, you know, th this is the rare band that actually really likes each other a lot. Uh, uh, the immediate family is not just a name. It's really how I feel about, how we all feel about each other. Mm -hmm. So to be able to be with our family, this family, uh, celebrate a couple birthdays together, it was really special. You know, we, this I think for a lot of people, COVID has uh, shown us how how important those connections are. And, and when our little connection, which is 
musical. It's a family. We look out for each other to, to, to be in the room and to be making music again. And we all, you know, I've played a lot during COVID. I practice all the time, probably more than I usually do. But I got in rehearsal and after about an hour, my back was killing me because I've been, pl I sit down when I practice at home. Right. And I'm standing up with a electric guitar around my neck and I'm going, oh, I'm not used to, you know, like, I'm not used to this. Different muscles. Yeah. So how was it when you were, when you were making those videos and you're all, like, I know, I do a lot of group videos for different purposes. And when people talk, like if we try to sing happy birthday to someone on a Zoom, it's all fucked up. So yes. how, how do you do that? Do you do You record everybody separately and then you, what do you do? Well, well the music part, there's, we've done two kinds of videos. One, mm -hmm. one where we're actually, uh, a bunch of the videos that we did where the first guy like whoever, what we would do is whoever's singing the song. Let's say let's say we we did what's one of the ones we did a uh, New York Minute. Right. So I film myself. Right. Playing, uh, and I sing it. Johnny got up. You know I'd sing the whole song. I love that song. Yeah. And then I send it to Wadi. Okay. Then he plays his part, films himself playing it. Then he sends it usually to Russ, because Wadi and Russ have like this amazing rock and roll time together. Okay. They're both, they have two of the best senses of time of anyone I've ever worked with. So once we get Wadi and, and Russ on, then we send it to Leland and then he films himself. Then we send it to Danny, then it comes back to me and I redo my parts now with everything, with the foundation there. So that so we did some. That's how we did those videos. There were. Then there was a video. Uh, and there were a couple of videos where we played along to the records, and then we'd film each guy would film ourselves, singing and playing to the records. So, uh, but we did a lot of it. We have an incredible guy named Mike Perlmutter who's a, who we didn't really know before, but a brilliant video editor. Just. Uh, and we have a, a, quite a team. I mean, we've got an incredible graphic designer, Brian. And your stuff is all great. I love the graphic for your new the podcast you guys are doing, which I've watched a couple. Uh, T I F talk, and the one I listened to most recently was all about food, which I loved. And it, you were talking about Grace Papaya in New York, and Wadi's talking about uh, 96 Bayard Street, right, and all of that. Um, are those unstruck? Do you guys know when you're going into those what you're going to talk about, or you just let it rip? Or you know, we we pick a subject. So we did we did two on gear, and we talked about. Right, I heard one on gear. Uh, so we let's do one on food. So we have to do one Friday. Um, you know, we might. You know, it could be on touring. It could be. You know, I don't. I think we'll, whatever we feel like talking about. We might do one on clothes. Like. What do we what do we wear when we play? You know, how did that change over the years? And that's my yeah. idea of that. But so yeah, it's called Tiff T the Immediate Family Talk, and and we just make them uh, on Zoom, uh, you know, every Friday. And so is this because it's still COVID and it's a way to connect with your fans and do all of that and keep that moving? It's not even a. It's not going to be COVID. It's a nice. It's a fun. It movie, is great collection of. Uh, videos that'll be up forever of, of this group of guys talking talking shit you know it's a great idea it's a wonderful thing 
maybe one day you'll be do, do you think you'll keep doing it from zoom and and, and i think zoom's going to be around forever now it's easier zoom is yeah i mean there's so many things like before covid we would have the band meeting in our manager's office which is in century city none of us live at century city right so not only do we have to find a day when seven people we have two managers and five guys were free Right. We all had to drive from Pasadena, from Camarillo, from from down where does San Juan Capistrano? I mean, crazy, all over the place, just to meet in his office. Right. It was a pain in the ass. Yeah. Now we meet every week. Boom, like that. Every week at eleven, the band meets. And we've people have done it. I had a doctor's appointment, a dentist appointment one day, and it was. So I did it from my car before the appointment because I had to drive over there, you know, so we can all be on the meeting. So I think that, yeah, I, that's going to, that's changed the world, actually. That's never going to I think back. so. There's so absolutely too. no reason. So how else did you, aside from the, aside from the music, how else, like, how did you handle COVID personally? Were you, did, were you going to the supermarket? Were you having everything delivered? How, what was your level of insanity for, for COVID? I, I was took it very seriously, unlike some people I know. Uh, I did the first four months, five months, food delivered, cleaned everything. Right. I didn't go anywhere. Yeah. And eventually the information, you know, Amazingly, I actually believe in science. My father was a <laughs> my father was a doctor. You know, doctors have saved my life. <laughs> I believe in science. So when the science indicated that actually, you know, wearing two masks and cleaning your hands, I started going to shopping again, and I still wear the masks when I go shopping, uh, and I will continue to. <laughs> uh, but, and the minute I, we could get vaccinated, we got vaccinated. And for those of my friends who aren't, I don't know what you're thinking. I just don't get it. Like, just go read the statistics, read them. One, I mean, I started to get on this bandwagon. Only less than 1% of COVID hospitalizations are people who've been vaccinated. I just, I just read a thing in, today, in today's news that said, I, they didn't even say 1%. I believe they said that less, all COVID cases in the hospital are all people. One thing they have in common is they haven't been vaccinated. Right. I mean, it's, there's there's a tiny percentage, you know, mm -hmm. but it's it's under 1%. So how you could not see that and understand what's going on and look at the numbers and the deaths that are down and that, it's not down a little bit. It's down from 180,000 cases a day to 17,000, things right. like that. Right. Anyway, so we all got vaccinated immediately because we have work to do and we believe in it. And uh, and I will tell you that I have anecdotal evidence of the vaccinations working because I know a friend of mine spent the weekend with his two daughters and one of the boyfriends. All three of them had COVID and he did not get it. Wow. He was, I mean, he was with them. They, they ate meals together. They took, they went hiking. They, you know, they spent. The now, is he sure he didn't get it? Or is it possible he was asymptomatic? No, Did he, he get got, tested? Oh, he got tested. Yeah. He got tested. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. In a, in a situation twice. like that. He tested twice. Yeah. Wow. 
Okay, so that's real. But the, then it becomes the question of the variants. But actually, I'm very encouraged because the Delta variant, which is the horrible, horrible one, um, they're saying is in California and the vaccines are covering us. We're good. Yeah, so so anyway, the answer to your question is I, it was, um, I, I took it seriously and and overdid it like a lot of, I, I was an over, you know, I took, if I, I had to go to the doctor. I had some surgery that was a sort of emergency thing. I was going to ask you about that because you had to put yourself out in yeah, the world. And that was, you know, and then I went into quarantine after it. But when I got home, I took off all the clothes I had on in the hospital and my shoes. So I, I did all of those things. Right. And, uh, and I, you know, why would, you know, to me, why wouldn't I? So. Okay. So now that the world is opening up again, Steve, how, how has your life changed, other than the fact that the band, which is all vaccinated, is back together and you're going to supermarkets and stuff, are, are you eating indoors in restaurants? Are you ready to get on a plane? What are you doing differently now? Well, I haven't gotten on a plane, but I will have to when we, we're starting the tour in the fall. Mm -hmm. And I will. Mm -hmm. um, basically, if you're vaccinated, I'll hang out with you. And if we both, and if we get it, then, then we get it. Like, my rule is vaccinated we can hang out period um, that means so my studio I'm producing the first thing I haven't produced anything in there since February other than the band I had wow. a session I had a session last week uh-huh I have we have an assistant now and he's vaccinated and but but you know people don't think of it the way I think there's one person who was in the studio so I I'm gonna bring my son tomorrow he can just stay in your house and 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 re do his computer. I said, well, he's seven, so he's not vaccinated. He's going to school. So right. no, <laughs> you're not bringing him tomorrow. Right, right. You know, it's, 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 uh, but so, so people are not, uh, you know, so I'm trying to, I, to, to isolate myself with people who feel the way I do about it. Like I'm getting vaccinated. <laughs> I'm taking this seriously until it's really not around. You know, I don't need to get it. I know a lot of people got it and some of them didn't get that sick and some of them did. Um, and some of them have been sick the whole, for a year now. Right, the long haulers, yeah. And I know these people, it's not just, it's not just right. on, on the news. Mm -hmm. So are you, are you how, how are you with masking now? Are you going outside without a mask? Are you still masking? What are you doing? Well, I've always, I've never run, you know, I'm, I'm a jogger and I, I never ran with a mask because it's, it, it, I can run, there's a part of where my neighborhood where I can run and literally, if I see anyone, I can be 50 feet from them. Right. But I, but I walk a lot too. And I was always walking in a mask and I'm not, mm -hmm. I have it with me. You're and, not. And, and, and the reason I have it with me is out of respect. If someone's walking my way and they have a mask on, I'll put it on to respect their space. Absolutely. And, and are you eating indoors in restaurants now? I haven't yet. I've eaten under tents. I've still, right. I've eaten in, I finally last week ate in two restaurants that have outdoor seating. Uh-huh. Um, I guess I'll do it soon. You know, I'm sure I think so. <laughs> you know. I, I was doing only outdoor seating the, since I got vaccinated, but yesterday I ate inside for the first time, but there was nobody any, we were like the only ones in the restaurant. And then they sat someone at the next table and I got up, we got up and moved and went to the, another, 
But that was the first time I ate indoors. I don't really want to do it. I'm not really ready to do that. Even though I'm vaccinated, I just, I don't like the idea of taking my mask off inside where there could be people who are not vaccinated. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't know. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you that one thing that, that is, you know, I've been touring my whole life basically and I, and I know and I've always been aware of how easy it is to get sick on a plane to get sick when you tour so I've always worn a scarf uh-huh always on a plane when someone starts coughing I pull it up over my well now I'm just gonna I'm, I'll never ever get on a plane without a mask again and I'm so with you it's so my a friend of mine was saying that he hasn't had a cold in a year and a half, and it's right. the first time in his life he hasn't had a cold because every place he goes, he's wearing a mask. I mean, we used to do, you know, John Oates taught me to to put Vaseline in my nose when we flew, so that you know, because wow. we, you know, we have to sing. It's, it's getting a cold is not a great thing for people who do what I do. Right. Well. Speaking of people who do what you do, how about doing a little of what you do and uh, taking us in with a little song so we can talk about the music when we come back. So when I come back. So Steve, tell us, what, what are you going to sing for us? Uh, I just randomly chose a song <clears throat> no for no particular reason, uh, just because it, it's on, it's over, I happen to see the lyrics. Uh, it's a song called Catch the Wind that was on, what record was this on? Anyway, it was on one of my records a couple, of, and on the on the record, uh, the, it's, it's sort of a duet with Jennifer Warren, who I worked with for a while. Um, wow! And uh, yeah, it's just a little ditty that that I penned a long time ago. Not that long. Well, I don't I don't remember anymore. <clears throat> it all it all melds into one big mush for me at this point. <laughs> so uh, yes, uh, it's called Catch the Wind. I know, oh, let me do a test with you. Can you hear the guitar? I sure can. Absolutely. It's great. By the way, this guitar is a beautiful, it's an Alvarez Yari custom guitar that- It's made, gorgeous. They made for us when we were in Japan. Wow. And the, and the guy who made it was young and I couldn't, you know, he didn't speak English, so it was hard to tell him like, uh, so beautiful. You know, oh. I love your guitar. All right. Since I pulled my anchor up, 
I'm sailing out to sea Since I pulled my anchor up, I'm sailing out to sea. Since I pulled my anchor up, I'm sailing out to sea. Sailing out to sea. Just catch the wind I'm sailing out to sea Sailing out to sea Steve, that is Beautiful. Uh, when did you write that? Hmm. Probably about 12 years ago. Beautiful song. Is there a story behind it? There is, uh, sort of. I mean, all songs have some sort of story. Mm -hmm. I was uh, I was on a silent retreat. Wow. And, uh, and you were not only not allowed to talk, but you weren't supposed to play an instrument. It was, it was supposed to be completely silent. And the not talking was great. How long was the, the silent retreat? Seven days. Wow. But after two days, I, I, I couldn't take it not playing <laughs> music. So I took my guitar into the woods where they couldn't hear me. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and the song, uh, it came out of something, some teaching from the retreat, but that, that's, I wrote it in sitting in the woods, hiding from the, uh, the Rinpoche who was running the retreat. So, so I know you did a documentary with Ram Das, and um, is this a big part of your life? Is, uh, is spiritual practice, has that, how did, how did spiritual practice come into your life? I, about 23 years ago or so, when I was live, living, my band Little Blue was mostly living in Aspen at the time, based out of Aspen. Uh, 
that's where we played with John Oates, and he lived there, so he was the one who encouraged us. Well, why don't you just come here? Uh, John Michelle in that was John Michelle the drummer in that band. He yeah. was the drummer in that exactly. And Michael Jude was the other partner in it. Peter Adams also, who's my friend now and mm -hmm. has always been, but we played together a lot. So um, what I'd noticed in life in general is that when I was playing music, I was okay. In between playing music, I wasn't necessarily always okay. You know, things I how so? Oh, what a normal, you know, things in life were chaotic, relationships not working, uh, whatever, you know, okay. not feeling happy, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And I and I started to see these, that it was sort of music, life, music, life. They weren't connected in a way. And mm -hmm. I and I and in my mind. So so that was going on. I saw a poster on a tree saying this Buddhist monk is coming to town to talk about Buddhist practice. And I guess I hadn't really digested that word connected with Buddhism, the Buddhist practice. And I mm. I just got the idea, well, maybe the problem is that I can practice music, but I, don't, and I can practice tennis and basketball, but I don't know how to practice life. Maybe, wow. Maybe you can practice that too. Wow. And, uh, so I, I went and, and it just immediately was quite, that first time was very, I'd always had been intrigued with it, always. Uh, 20 years before that, I'd gone to a monastery to check it out in San Francisco. But I never really knew enough about it. But it really made sense to me, like, okay, I'd like to, and, and it did make the, the my life less about music gap, music gap. It was like, it, it did integrate things much more, much more so. So you are you are a practicing Buddhist. I don't like to call myself anything because I don't you know I feel like what it, uh, just because I don't I don't know what it how advanced you have to be or but I practice Buddhism every day. Yes. There you go. And and you have a daily practice I, as you do with music as you practice music every day. You I I work out every day. I practice every day music and I. And I do this practice, and uh, yeah, there, there was a very—I don't love the term, but people would would maybe call me a Jubu. <laughs> I've never heard that before. I like that. Um, do you do you have routine? Do you have a ritual? Like, do you get up at a certain time? Do you do this at a certain time? Because I find that I do best. I'm the most free with structure, but I I haven't been honoring mine. But do you honor a routine? Only in that I, what I've learned about myself is if I don't, if I don't meditate right when I wake up, I won't, I probably won't do it. Right. And if I don't exercise right after that, I probably won't do it. So I do the, those two things. Yeah. Um, I was saying they're having trouble hearing you a little bit. So I don't know if oh. there's anything to, do to, to uh, up your volume just a tad. Yeah. I mean, I think, tell me if you hear this tapping. I hear it. Okay, so let me turn this mic up. Okay, um, and I'll bring it closer to me. Because I'm hearing you fine, but I guess some people, somebody oh, okay. are having a little bit of difficulty. So Steve, um, I've known you for a very long time. I know a bit about your background, but so for, the, for those people who are meeting you for the first time, and for those of you who don't know, Steve and I go back 
over 35 years, which is crazy. Um, and when I met you, well, let's go back before when I met you. So you're a little kid, you grew up in Manhattan, which was kind of unusual. Not a lot of kids get to grow up in Manhattan. Um, you, your father was a doctor. I know you were very close with your mother and I'm very sorry for your loss. I've met your mother many times and uh, she was an amazing woman and what an artist herself. Yeah. So you grew up in a, in a creative home what called you to music? What was the first time you sparked, okay, I want to do that? Well, right, the I want to do that, as opposed to, there was music in my house on the, my mother, for some reason that I asked her and she couldn't really, I thought I'd get some great answer. Like, why did you have a phenomenal record collection? Hmm. Like, unbelievable. Every kind of music blues and show tunes and classical and jazz and and Indian music. It was it was a pretty incredible that she had this. Wow. So I asked her to, about, about only three years ago. I said, so how did that? She goes, I like music. Like that's all I got out of her. But, <laughs> uh, so there was music on all the time and they did get, and they got me a little one of those little tiny record players so I could go in the living room, just take a record. I did it by, of course, as we all did it, that, but by, the covers were so interesting. Right. I took an interesting cover and I had my own little record player next to my bed. But when it, it when I was five, I was in Central Park with my mother and some guy was playing the guitar. And I, I was just completely transfixed. I, I had, I wouldn't leave. <laughs> I, there was, you know, well, why is that? I, I couldn't tell you. So from that moment, that's what I, I wanted to have a guitar. I wanted to play the guitar. They they didn't, uh, they were told I was too little. So I had to wait three more years. Um, so, did but you in, have a little guitar when you start? Was, you, was your first guitar, did you have a full-size guitar when you started? They, they got me a three-quarters guitar mm -hmm. and that lasted one lesson. The teacher said, no, no, no. He, <laughs> he, he can already play like this. And then we went back and got got this guitar right there. Oh, stop. Wow. What is that? It's called a Goya G10. I got it at Manny's Music when I was uh, eight years old. Wow. So do you believe, Steve, in past life? Do, do you believe in reincarnation and stuff like that? Not in, in, in the sense of what some doctrines I'm just wondering, do you believe that this is something that was in your soul, that music was just in your soul? And Yeah, I, I believe that the way music hit me, uh, now, I don't know whether it's because I was exposed so early and those records were playing, like maybe mm -hmm. all, anyone who had those records playing or not, Nurture Nature, I don't know the answer to that. I know that it was always instantly accessible to me, fascinating to me. I could always sing melodies. Music, I think, I think there's something going on there. Yeah, I mean, innate talent. I don't think, you can't teach somebody perfect pitch. You, there are things that can't be taught. Right, well, interesting thing about perfect pitch, not to get technical here, but uh, a few years ago, some uh, scientists, researchers were, were trying to figure out why certain people had perfect pitch. Mm -hmm. And they discovered there's a little tiny center in the brain where perfect pitch lives. And we all have that 
physically, but if you don't trigger it by the time you're about four, it won't turn into perfect pitch. And they believe it has to do with that when people first communicated, it was with sounds. So you had to, so the pitches represented different language. Right. So that we actually all apparently, no, I haven't, you know, looked more into this research, but apparently there's a possibility that the perfect pitch thing is a, is like, it's a physical part of the brain that can get turned on or turned off. That is crazy. I've never heard that before. Well, that's, that's a really good reason to expose children very early to singing. Wow. Absolutely is. Yeah. So were you singing when you were, before you started playing guitar? Yeah, I was always singing. Yeah. Always singing. I was always making up songs, singing them to my mom, you know, so I, I never had a problem with, and also when I, when I got the guitar, mm-hmm. now I, I don't teach little kids anymore because I don't, I just don't, but when I taught, well, any beginner I teach has, it takes a while to be able to press the strings down. They right. They buzz, they can't, I could just do it. And I think I could do it because I'd watched it so intently from when I was five. And, you know, they took me to see Segovia, they took me to see Montoya, they took me to see Ravi Shankar. I watched, he wasn't guitar, but he was pressed. Right. I watched their hands with such intensity that I think by the time I got a guitar in my hand, it, it I, I already knew how the hand should move. Wow. Because I never had a problem pushing down the strings or anything like that. Yeah, see, I think, I believe that that's some sort of something that's kind of, but it doesn't matter. You've got it now, so it doesn't matter. So, okay, so you get a guitar at eight, you're, you're playing. I, I, I seem to recall there was a mentor in your life who kind of... Well, another another stroke of luck, I think, was that, I don't know, you know, now I can't find out, but I don't know where they found him, but my, my uh, mother, I think, found a teacher. His name was Richard Nevis. And for me... I don't think there would have been a better teacher for me than him because he was a very charismatic guy and he did a bunch of things. He played the classical music, he played flamenco, he was a singer, he played rock and roll, he was a Broadway singer, he was an actor. Yeah. He and he was he was a very this, this Spaniard, this handsome Spaniard who did he was just so charismatic and from so from day one, mm-hmm. reading, music, playing the guitar, and singing all were integrated. I never they wow. were he did that from the first day. Wow. And that was an invaluable thing for me that they the coordination of the theory, the physical, and the singing happened all at the same time. And that's kind of unusual, though, because like my son took guitar. I took guitar when I was, well, but I wasn't playing. We weren't playing music that you could sing to. Right. The, the kind of stuff that usually you're taught. So what was he, what were you getting fooled in that you were able to sing along that early? Well, he just, first song, I remember it. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Oh. That was the first song. So he was a hippie of sorts if he was singing Tom Dooley. Well, he was a folk singer. He had a folk, he had a group that was kind of like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and they played all around. And yeah. yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So I sang that the first day I ever picked up a guitar. 
Wow. And how long did you study with him? Because he was so influential for you. I studied with him into high school and then we started playing together. We started working. Wow. Yeah. He, wow. he hired me to do some, we would do gigs together. Uh, and then eventually when I, when I sort of graduated from him to go to music school and all that, I got, I had other teachers. Yeah. Now, I, the last time we spoke, you hadn't been able to find him. Have you ever found him? I've never found him. Mm. No. Somewhere he knows, somehow he knows. I hope he knows. Cause I, I, I just, I mean, I don't know if he's alive. I, I, you know, I, I don't know. And there were two really important teachers. I can't find, they're both the kind of guys who are the wrong age to be on social media. Mm. And I can't find either of them. There's one, although I did find that one of the important mentors for me is, is alive. Uh, and he's the guy who, he was the head of, of BMI. He came to my first show, his name was Bobby Weinstein. And he said, you've, you've got it. You've got what it takes. I'm going to put you in the studio. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pay for it. I don't want anything in return. I just want to start your career. What? Wow. And, and he brought us in the studio. And Steve, have you, ever, have you ever paid that forward? Have I ever made enough money to be putting people in studios? <laughs> well, but you have a studio. I don't know. I, I'm not saying that you should. I'm just, that's incredible that somebody did that for you. I mean, I've, I, I've done, I do a lot, not a lot, but I do, uh, I try to pass on. I know you do. Uh, I, I have some, I have some great young students and some of them become just friends who come over and, and talk to me. So, and, and I, and then people's children, I just, uh, a friend of mine's daughter, 17, she's a really nice singer, but. You know, can, you know, can, could she meet with you? And of course, and I, I do that a lot. Yeah, of course you do. Um, by the way, Dan Hickey and, and Lee are with us right now. So oh, wow. they're saying, hey, um, so, and I, I, wow, I found a picture of you and Dan Hickey from a band you guys were in with, oh, and David Santos. Oh my God, what the, you guys, I, I, I'm going to post it after the show. Well, it's that, that I have, we only recorded five songs, which I have. Wow. That band was phenomenal. We were, unfortunately, just timing and people started going on the road. We were kind of, there was a fourth, the fourth guy was, was Joel Derwin, who's a, a prodigy, a virtuoso violinist, but could play like, wow, like Eddie Van Halen before even that was around. He was unbelievable. So it was the four of us. And we wrote this kind of, it's pretty heavy. It was like pretty heavy music. Uh, well, what year was this? 80s, mid 80s. Right around when I knew you. I thought you guys looked familiar. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that was a, I, I, unfortunately, we went in the studio one time and cut these five tracks. So I know I'm, I was, I know I'm not dreaming. It was really great. <laughs> um, okay. So, so you're a kid, you're playing. How does it morph from, and I know you went to Dalton and, uh, how did you go from, were you playing gigs when you were in high school? A little bit, not a lot. I, I, this is a funny story though, but a New York, a very strange story to me. Yeah. I, so I, I went, it was, went to public school first. I went to PS6. Okay. And in, in about 19, 
maybe 68 or something, that, that uh, the city had this bright idea that they were going to reverse bus, which uh -huh. meant they were going to take some white kids and stick them in black and Puerto Rican schools. Mm -hmm. And I got picked. Uh, and it was a very And could you be any what? Oh, yeah, right. No, yeah. Any no. Whiter. No, yeah. I couldn't have been really much whiter than I was. Well, I guess I could have been, but that's a whole other story. If right. I wasn't Jewish, maybe I was, it could even have been whiter. But, uh, and it was an intense experience. I mean, it was, it was 6%, I think at the most white. And so, you know, I got mugged, I got but I also made friends and I, but it was culturally great. And, you know, I don't regret the experience, but it was a very intense experience to put an eight, nine-year-old in, you know? Right. So I'm telling, I'm at a barbecue in Santa Barbara on Sunday, this Sunday. I'm telling that story to this woman who asked me, she's a writer, she has a magazine and she knows me and was somehow, was the first time I played for people. I said, well, I was in public school and at fourth grade, but played a Beatles song. And I told her that story and she said, that's really wild. My husband has a very similar story. So she called him over and she said to him, what, what school was that? And he goes, PS 198, same school. Oh my God. So all these years, you know, later. Wow. And that was a very short time that they did that actually. Yeah, a couple, about three, about, about five years. And I was in the first group, he was in the last group. And, and, uh, and we just, so she said, so he's not making up the, they, he tells me I got mugged a lot. I didn't believe him. I went, believe, <laughs> believe him. <laughs> so did it affect the kind of music that you were playing? Cause you were in this kind of different. Uh, what it, I think what it did when it, when, how it related to music is that mm -hmm. when I finally got to, private school. Right. Uh, I, well, there's a, a book, of, this friend of mine, African-American fellow who's done really well, just wrote a book about, uh, about how this, our school took a bunch of black kids from the ghetto and brought them into this fancy private school and what his experience was. Now, a lot of these guys did really well. Wow. And the two of them who wrote the book, uh, uh, Raymond Smaltz is my friend, this other guy, Mark, uh, they they both did unbelievable, they're both award winning, you know, a lot of them. Did they put them in Dalton? Where did they put them? Dalton. They, Dalton. They, they, you know, gave them scholarships, but it was a very new concept at the time. Right. Uh, I think because of the public school thing for me, I gravitated much more to those guys than mm -hmm. to a lot of the... You know, I didn't relate to the really uber wealthy society people that were at my school because that's not what we were. Right. So I think that it, and then through my love of basketball and music and that culture and hanging with those guys, I really got into R&B music and, and Motown. And I got, I, you know, what they took, I went with one of my friends, Kenwood Denard, who's in a, one of the great musicians in the world. Uh, and was then he took me to the uh, the Apollo Theater when I was thirteen to see James wow. Brown. Wow! You know. Wow! So I think that it that I I think that the public school thing 
made me feel a lot less separate mm. in the world and actually more separate from some of the elite deal that was present in that school. Right. So, okay. So how did it turn into gigs for you? Uh, By the way, Lee said he's very disappointed because you told him you were going to be naked. And Dan says, uh, you are naked on the inside. Well, and I'm also not wearing pants. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> why, why would I bother wearing pants? There you go. Uh, um, the first gig, I, <laughs> my teacher from the public school, who was an artist, mm -hmm. a fourth grade teacher, when I was 16 or 15, no, even younger, 14, Mm -hmm. I would called me, still have my, I forget how she knew her, and hired me to play a gallery opening of her work. Wow. So she knew I, because I played in her class. The first time I ever played for people was a Beatles song. I wish I could remember which one, but I can't, uh, in her class. And so she, a couple of years later, uh, so that was my first gig. And then my teacher, Richard, would, he had different little gigs for us, you know, occasionally. One of the ones that, that I really was really uh, special was that uh, there was a guy named Henry who was who owned Manny's Music. Right. Very loved, famous guy who sold Jimmy, every, everyone. Everybody from Hendrix, Lennon, everyone who's in New York went to Manny's. That's where I got that guitar and all my guitars. Right. And we played a party at Henry's house when I was about 14. I was, and my teacher was, you know. So, okay, so how did it turn into, what was your first paid gig? Do you remember? Well, the, the gallery when I was 13. That, you got paid to do that? I got $25. You got $25. Yeah. You got $25. Well, that was um, good. Yeah, and, was and then what was your first band? Like, how, okay, so I know you play every genre of music. Right. So. Okay, I, how did it turn professional? It, right. I, without, well, okay. I'll make it quick, but when I was 16, my mother's a painter, was a, a beautiful painter, and she studied with a very a very uh, esteemed Russian Jewish teacher named Norman Rabin, whose father was Shalom Aleichem, who wrote Fiddler on the Roof. Oh my gosh. And so he was this literate, amazing person, and I wanted to study painting too, so I would go to the class. It was very small, and one of the people in the class was Bob Dylan. This is the story I'm going for. Here you go. Oh my God. And who was at that point, just the timing, he, he was it for me at that point. Like the Beatles had always been, but I'd morphed into like wanting to learn every song. So, so I'm in this class with him and he's kind of has this huge uh, impact and, and uh, in my life, on my life at that point. But, I never talked to him, left him alone, didn't want him to even know I played music. Um, this was in his post-motorcycle accident period. Okay, so what music are we talking about? He took two years off. He had a motorcycle accident. We don't really know how badly he got hurt, but bad enough that he, that he kind of stopped. Mm -hmm. his, I believe then he, when he came back in, it might have been New Morning or Nashville. I forget which record was the one that came back in. So it was like early 70s, like 70 or something? Uh, yeah. Mid-70s. Okay. You can look up when the, when, I forget when it was. It was like it was pretty early, but maybe 73 or something. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. So 
I, in, so up at this point, I was emulating his career like that. I'm going to do it the way he did it. I'm going to play the bitter end. I'm going to do, right. And you're doing solo, you're doing solo singer-songwriter stuff then? Tiny bit. I'm only 15, 16, so okay. not, you know, on my own, but not. Right. I had the impression that he was really lost. And in my 16-year-old head, I decided he can be really lost because he's Bob Dylan. Right. He's got money. He can take two years and find himself again. I couldn't do that, so I should go to music school. Ah. So that I wasn't planning to until I think that being around him, and I don't think it was a valid observation. It's just how I... Through the, it's the prism that I looked at it through, right? So, so I determined that I would not go to regular college and I'd go to right to conservatory. And the reason I did it was so that I could work if people weren't buying my songs. How so? Because I'd be a trained musician. I could read. I could, you know, do other things. I wasn't sure how so. I just felt that I would have a background. I could, I could compose i could do you knew all you wanted to do was music did you did you ever have a job job did you ever have to do like a job that wasn't music related uh for three weeks what, what did you do well when i got well I'll, it, it actually follows this okay, okay. For the story it follows into that so i so i'm still not sure how it's going to work i was going to the conservatory at those days the conservatories only taught classical music now they teach everything what, what, was it like Whiplash, Steve? Was it very strict? Was it like that? Pretty whole... strict. Pretty strict. The whiplash was full of shit. So forget okay. Whiplash. Yeah. Okay. It's bullshit. Mm. Sorry. Sorry, Whiplash. <laughs> uh, Great movie. But, but it was. But it was. It was. It was. Yeah. It was strict, and it was strict also in the way that that you weren't. You know, popular music was frowned upon. You know, so so in order to study that, I had a teacher. Uh, who taught jazz and theory and and you know how to play guitar that wasn't classical? His name was Myron Weiss, and Myron was playing chorus line at the time, I think. So he was one of those guys who played a Broadway show at night and he taught all day. So uh, this is before phone machines even. His phone rings. If it rang, he picked it up. Right. So I'm I'm already at Manus College of Music. His phone rings. He's talking, talking to him, not paying much attention. And he goes, oh, hold on a second. He goes, Steve, you want to go on the road with Man of La Mancha? I said, what's that? He goes, it's a, it's a Broadway show. You, you could kill it. You'd be fine. I went, yeah, I guess so. So all of a sudden, I was playing Broadway shows. That's how you got into Broadway. Wow. Right. And, and you did that for quite some time. I did. But so, the, so I played some off-Broadway I played Man of La Mancha, played some off-Broadway shows, some tours. Then I got Evita on Broadway with Patti LuPone, oh taking over from the original guitar player. So they, so I rehearsed it. I got, and I was supposed to start on October first, and I was making incredible money for the time. Like, you know, it was really, it was a union job. It was great. So I went out and spent every dollar I had. I bought four <laughs> new guitars so that I could leave them at the show and not have to bring guitars every night. I bought four, and then they called me and said. Uh, we're actually going to delay your start for a month. So I have now, I don't have a dollar. Like, I spent all my money. And uh, 
and I now have to wait a month before I go start playing a Vita. So I decided, so I could have, of course, I could ask my dad, hey, dad, could you lend me enough money to get by for a month? Right. But again, one of my youthful uh, mental exercises, that I, many of which didn't make sense, <laughs> I said, well, what would I do if I couldn't ask my dad? I said, what could I do today and make some money? And I said, well, I always take these car services to go to the airport and said, I wonder if I could drive for a car service. So I drive my Volvo station wagon up to 108th Street and Broadway to Carmel Car Service. <laughs> 6666. 6666, right? Exactly. So I walk upstairs into this room. And this is politically incorrect, but it's incorrect. This is what happened. There's 200 guys from India, from Pakistan, all over the place, and one white guy who walked in the room, me. The guy in the microphone goes, you, in the back, come over here. Wow. So I walk through the crowd, and he goes, what kind of car do you have? I said, a Volvo station wagon. He goes, here, go to the airport. Wow. That's, that's a horrible but true story. Yeah. He gave me a beeper. Anyway, for, th for a few weeks, I drove a car service. <laughs> Were you successful at it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a, you know, it's the only job I had. I, I did learn that the richer the people were, the less they tipped. Wow, that's interesting. If, it I, was took, that if I took later. someone to Sutton Place, I wasn't getting much of a tip. Wow, that's sad and true. As a waiter, I know that to be true too. Right. So, okay, so, so you're doing Broadway and... Are you are you gigging on this side? Are you yeah. still playing rock yeah. and roll? Always, always. I mean, I had a. As a matter of fact, it was a great time because the the band, which was signed to Sid Bernstein, the the promoter who brought the Beatles to Shea Stadium, uh, when we would play all these Broadway, you know, Broadway was a real community, and it was a very fun, flamboyant community. So it was all like these great gay guys who were these great dancers and very, you know, lively and then these beautiful women. And so when I played a gig, everyone loved it. There'd be like 40, you know, it was a party. All these, all these people from Broadway, show, from my Broadway show and others would come. And uh, there were three of us in that band that, that played Broadway shows. So, so our, our audiences were, were really packed and, and, and fun. What was the name of that band? It was just the Steve Postel band. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would do that um, and we would record and, we, and Sid Bernstein was trying to get us a record deal and, and, I, and I'd play the, play the shows, eight shows a week and, and then after the show sometime, go off and take the midnight slot at the bitter end or something like that. Wow, good old Ken Gorka days. So, so how did Broadway turn into, what happened? Why did you leave? The Broadway scene. I I was playing one of the shows, and it might have been a Vita. That may have been the end of the run. And you did a Vita with Patty Lapone. You you did it at, like when it was yeah. Right? Wow. yeah. Patty and uh and uh, Potemkin. Yeah. yeah. Potemkin. Uh, he left. I played about a played the last eight months. I think they had both left. Maybe she. I forget. But I I was the youngest guy in the pit and wow. 
And there were some really uh, disgruntled, dissatisfied old guys who just went from Broadway show to Broadway show. At least that was my impression that they just they didn't care anymore. It was just it was they might as well have been, you know, working at a Ford plant. And I just went, uh, uh-uh, I got to get out of this. I don't want to. I never want to feel that way about music. <clears throat> So I just quit. Were you saving money? Did you have like a nice little chunk of change to? I've never saved money. I've never been able to save any money. Because you keep buying guitar. How many guitars does a guitar player need? One more? That's the thing, right? You just Next one, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I uh, recently was redoing my insurance for my studio equipment guitars, and I'm not going to mention any numbers, but a quarter of the way through the list, I was like, Jesus, I have a lot of stuff. You know, like... Uh, but uh, no, I always like reinvested into into me, you know, into studios. Bought you know, bought studio the guitars, equipment. Then the equipment would get better, and it turned into ADATs. I you know turned to multi-track, and it turned to ADATs, and it turned right. So, so, um, so yeah. how, okay. So you left you left Broadway, and so how did you start making a living when you left Broadway? Uh, jingles mostly commercials so how did you break into that because that's a whole nother world with all different people right but it, but it's there's a crossover with the broadway people like really well because it's it's the it's people who can read people who can you know so like i think one of the conductors i did a tour with had a jingle and he and he said you know mm-hmm. come play the guitar on this jingle. so there was a there was a natural there was a it, a flux of musicians who did both of those kinds of things. I see. So that there was the rock and roll guys, which I was part of that crew too, but then there were it was sort of the guys who could read and who could play legit stuff and 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 some of us could do both. Right. You know. So I did that for a long time. And I had I always what's happened is that there's been these periods and each period came to a point where I went I better get out of this into a new cycle because I could get stuck. And I and I was in the studio doing jingles, doing television scoring and all all good stuff. Wait, how did you, so television scoring came out of doing jingles, I assume? Yeah, it's the same people. It's all the same people. Okay. Uh, and and I remember one night, and, and then I would play, once every three weeks we'd have a gig. That was it. Sometimes, you know, and the rest, and, and what I, so, so I was always nervous. Like, I mean, I did good shows, but it wasn't a flow. I, once every three, four weeks is not, you can't get into a flow. Right. And I felt that. Mm-hmm. I went to see Lonnie Mack at the Lone Star. Uh-huh. And Lonnie Mack, unfortunately, a lot of people don't know who he was, but he was Steve Ray Vaughan's idol. He was just the the Southern hardcore blues Americana guy, badass cowboy hat, you know, sort of what, sort of what um, Jeff Bridges played in, in that movie, uh, uh-huh. whatever that was called. Yeah, yeah. I know what he, you're talking about. He won the Academy Award for it. it was, that was, Hard. this guy Hard. was, was the real thing like that. Uh-huh. And his band was like that. You know, and, and if they didn't drink a bottle of whiskey on stage during the show, it wasn't a good show. And I went to the Lone Star, 
and the ease they had, the groove, the, the vibe. And I just, I looked at it and I said, you know what? I got to make a decision. I either want to be that or I want to be in the studio making nice sounding music for other people. I have to decide. Because I'll never get to be that unless I play every night. I won't get that. I won't get, I'll be good, but I'll never be like that guy, like those guys. Right. And I went with my friend Michael Jude, went to Aspen, started playing every night, formed Little Blue. Well, before that, I, I formed Chain of Fools, right? First it was Chain of Fools. Then it turned into that. That's right. I, I formed, I started playing, I made a band that was going to, that could play all the time. We learned 300 cover tunes so we could play in bars. Uh-huh. I just went, I got to play every night. Because I didn't, when when other guys were doing that, I was playing classical and playing solo stuff when other guys had to. So I came, so late in the game, I started playing clubs. As a matter of fact, right before I met you, mm-hmm. the reason I was down there, I was on Bleecker Street. I'd just gotten home from, from the few gigs I did with Pure Prairie League. Okay, so wait, before you get to Bleecker okay. Street, how did that happen? How did Pure, I mean, they were a huge band at that time. Uh my my lawyer, mm-hmm. uh, Bob Epstein, who was mm-hmm. like instrumental in a lot of things I did, um, and I tried to get me a record deal. He he had, he got me Sid Bernstein, you know he was involved. He recommended me. Uh, uh, so Vince Gill had left the band, and then um, so crazy that Vince Gill was in. I didn't even remember. That. And then Craig Fuller replaced Vince Gill, and Craig Fuller went to be in Little Feet. They needed a Vince Gill, Craig Fuller guy, you know, lead guy. So I went down uh, to meet them, play with them, do a couple gigs. Um, and they were fantastic. And But I was, I was 10 years younger than them. They had lost their deal with RCA. I think it was RCA. And they were kind of floundering. And I'd left a lot of work to come down and do this. And, and I just felt that it just wasn't a, uh, it was a great musical match, but it wasn't a lifestyle, a good lifestyle match for me at the time. Mm-hmm. And probably for them, because I, I, I wasn't going to be this all in, drinking all night guy. You know, it was, so, so that didn't, didn't turn into to that and also there was a record deal that's that, that was sort of being dangling to me up in New York anyway so I just got back from that and I forget why I was on Bleecker Street and I walked into the Red Lion and I'd never done a cover gig in my life it never, never occurred to me like I had only played original music wow and uh and I'm talking to the that Beatles song that you can't remember oh I played some cover songs Okay. But I never played in a bar a cover gig. I gotcha. Uh, yeah, I played a lot of songs of other people. But when I played gigs, it was always original music with a cover to- song to fit in. Right. So, so I'm talking to the manager, bartender guy, Irish, Irish guy, we're all Irish down there. And, he's, and he was asking me some stuff. And I said, yeah, I just got back from Cincinnati or wherever I was. I was playing... Played a couple gigs with his band Pure Prairie League, and and he went bananas. That was like, that was his favorite band in the world, more than the Beatles, more than anybody. What? For some reason. Okay. 
And he begged me to do a gig at the at the Red Lion. I said, I, I don't really do what these guys are doing. He goes, he goes, you gotta play here. You just gotta play here. I said, well, I'll think about it. So I called three friends of mine. I said, you wanna learn 30 cover songs and go play at the Red Lion? I mean, yeah, that'd be fun. One of them was Jeff Pivar, who I think you know. Wow, very well. Jeff just- Jeff and his, his yeah. now ex-wife, Dana Pomfret, and Joel, the violinist that, that I told you about. So the four of us learned 30 songs. I still have our work tape. Great song, great stuff too. It was a, it was a great set list, and we went down and started playing once a week. And I had it was the most fun I'd ever had playing music. <laughs> Place was packed. We were playing these amazing songs. We so that, and that's when I went. I need to, and that's when I made Chain of Fools. I need to just play. I don't care if I wrote it. Other people wrote it. The Beatles played every night. The Stones, but everybody who's good played every night, and I haven't, and this is too much fun. And that sort of veered me away from being the the studious guy in the studio, you know, modeling, uh, you know, modeling the old studio guys who never went on the road, and you know. And, right. Uh, Were you able to still? You still did studio stuff, though. Less and less, I did, but but I I really, I really channeled the at that time because because we did play every night we got paid and and um yeah so i was fine you know i I, that was that's what i wanted to do so that's how it moved away from from that and yes i always did studio stuff but not like i wasn't doing jingles every day and the, the last real jingle that i did the thing that again i had these moments with all these things that made me go uh uh so I was doing something for DuPont, which I don't know if they're still around. They were a big. No, I remember them though. Chemical company. I forget what they were. They, but, I know. They, didn't they do like paint and? It was know. paint, whatever it was. Yeah. So, so back then there were no, there was no internet to send your music. You would, you would have to write it, record it, call a messenger. The messenger, the bike messenger would come, get a cassette. Wow. Ride down to Midtown, play from the heat. Then they'd call you. Then you make another. So it was a real to do. So, so we're looking at the commercial, writing the music, and and we'd been up for almost two and a half days back and forth. And which was not unusual at the time because everything took a long time. And there, there was a, for about, I don't know how long is this, a second, half a second. There was a a bee flew across the. you know with a DuPont because the colors were yellow whatever this was the beginning of sampling we had samples of bees so I put a bee sound you know like that so I've been up for two and a half days finally get the music the way they want it I get a call that sounds like a fly not a bee and I was like it's a bee what do you mean and I said I'm out I'm done with jingles (laughs) so wow anyway so then it then it really uh started moving in the direction of of uh of most of the time playing and making records and still and more producing other artists as okay, a, I was going to ask about that how did that start I know you were producing your own stuff but how did you how did you start producing for others You know I because I had a studio really early on because I started you know, I started in New York or in LA? In New York, yeah. Still- I, I 
Well, we realized when we started doing jingles and, and commercials and all that kind of thing is that at the time, because it was assumed that you would have to go to a studio and you would have to hire musicians, right? the budgets were really big. Like we get a little three minute infomercial and it'd be $10,000. And I said, well, if we go to the studio and hire all these musicians, we're, we're only going to make $3,000. Why don't we go to, down to Manny's and buy a multi-track tape recorder and buy synthesizers and record it ourselves? So, so we started, every time we got a gig, I had a partner in this jingle company, we would take half the money and go buy more equipment until we had a real studio. Wow. And so I learned how to do it. And then people started, Hey, can you, could you record me? You know, like, so that's how that. Because producing has become a huge, is a huge part of your life. Yeah. It, it became something that I like to do more and more know how to do. And, uh, and I feel like I, I can make things sound pretty good. You know. So did you start, what was the first music you were producing other than jingles, your own music or something yeah. you were doing for something? Yeah, yeah, your yeah, own. It, was, it was, the first music was making my own music and, and recording it and multi-tracking it and figuring out how to do that. And back then you would have to, you know, start on a four track machine and you'd bounce, and bounce you know, and then, it, then I was an eight track, then it was a 16 track, you know, and learning the learning self-taught, learning in, in, uh, in the room alone. And then I'd go to studios when I'd have a session in a studio. Mm -hmm. And I was like a little, you know, pain in the ass sitting next to the engineers going, what are you doing? What's that? Why are you compressing that? What is, what is compression? You know? So anytime I was around anybody who had experience, I was, I mean, I got to sit in a room with Bob Clearmountain you know, in the in way long ago, and I didn't even talk to him, but I but I, he had I, what I remember is he had just r racks of compressors, and afterwards I asked the assistant engineer, "What what does he do with those? You know, what what's what's that what's that about? You know, so so um so it was always something I was interested in because I also didn't want to be dependent on anyone to make my music sound good, right. I didn't want to have to, you know, have to find someone who was good at it. If I wrote a song, I wanted to record it and make it sound, I wanted to make it sound good. And so from the time that you gave up the jingles and everything, you've always been able to make your living as a musician. I mean, well, from Broadway, you've always been able to make your living as a musician and a producer, correct? Yeah. Yeah. One way or the other. <laughs> One way or the other. So... So what made you come out to L.A.? Because I know you was a New York musician, and what brought you out to California? Well, California always was calling to me. I just felt a call to be here. And the music scene in New York started to die, as you know, I'm sure, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I saw that happening. It started getting more expensive. It started getting harder. It started to repeat itself. Mm -hmm. um, and the kind of work that was there was less and less the kind of work I wanted to do. So, so, so I almost made it to LA in the late eighties. We, my friend Roscoe Beck had a studio with a guy named Steve Strassman and 
we were visiting and there was an empty room in the back and I had this all this MIDI equipment because we were one of the we were early adapters of what's called MIDI and computer we had a we had one of the first computers that old Mac that ran some MIDI stuff and Roscoe wanted me and Joel to move to LA and put our MIDI studio in there and the other guy was a real purist and he said that synthesizers suck and we were a real studio and so that didn't happen but eventually I I was just ready for a change and I the band had based in Aspen for 10 years that band was coming clearly coming to a close and I was in LA and I was producing an artist but I needed a studio and my friend Steve Ferroni I didn't know him that well at the time but I knew him the Heartbreakers drummer and Clapton and Chaka Khan and everyone else yes of course so I said can we yeah I want to do it in your studio I want you to play the drums and I so we hired his studio mm -hmm. and he had a really really great it was a, his own he had a building and it was it was really nice and I noticed so it was him and a partner a guy named John Jones who's a who was a Grammy-winning engineer and worked with Duran Duran and many people. And uh, we all hit it off, and I noticed that, so John had his own production room, and then there was this, the big room with the live room with the drums, and there was a... The By the concert. way, John's been on this show. Uh, he's Ooh. the one that told me that you weren't loud enough. Oh, wow. <laughs> Hi, John. So, so John and Steve were very, you know, helpful and... and and warm and it was a great it felt great mm -hmm. and i noticed that across the hall from john's little room was a room full of boxes it was just like junk right so i got back to la and i thought about i called ferroni and i said how would you feel if i took all my equipment moved to la and moved into that room and he said i thought you'd never ask wow so i just packed up Put my equipment in a truck and and john was you know one of the so i steve was there who's was, was one of the greatest musicians in the world so i was immediately had to you know up my game to like when we're working together i my time had to be better you know and john jones was not only he's not only a great producer and engineer but he was a technically very savvy like he was an i think he was a beta tester for for pro tools but wow. he taught so he taught me, so I had, it was just the best of both worlds, you know, I, wow. great music, and, and John was a great musician, but also really, I could just, and I just go, you know, call across the line, hey, John, if I want to put an edit point, and he'd come in, and, you know, so it was four years, we had a fantastic experience, and uh, wow. so I got to L.A., unlike some of my friends, and had a place to go the first day. Wow. You know, I knew people came here and didn't last because you just come here and where do you go and how do you get a gig? And I was just, I moved to L.A. the next day, put my stuff in that studio. It was called Drum Roll Recording. And and how were you making money, right? Like, how did you start gigging out here? Well, we were making money. We were doing jobs. We were producing people. You were doing it right away. Because right away. Were you doing it through your association with Ferroni? Is that how you started right away? Ferroni got some gigs. John Jones got some gigs. I got some gigs. People knew I was out here now. And and I'd been coming out for years, so people wanted to work with me. Right. And we were doing library music, and we were doing producing people, and, you know, whatever it was. Um, 
and always doing gigs. And then and then I got signed. Then then I uh, got signed to a, a label called Emergent Records, and that sort of veered me off. Finally, where that part of my life was going to be, it was going to take precedent again. And it's funny, interesting that a lot of people I knew the first two years or so that I was here didn't know I sang and didn't know I wrote songs. They thought of me as either a producer or a session guitar player because that's what, you know, I was kind of keeping a low profile in that other area. And, and, and they were pretty shocked when they'd finally come to a gig and they'd see me there playing and singing like, oh, I thought you were a session guitar player, <laughs> you know. So that's the, that's the story. This is a really good point to, uh, I think, have you play, can you play one of those songs when you emerged as, uh, with your record deal there? Yeah, you mean from that record? Yes, because I want, I want you to play something from that and then before we close, we'll have you play an immediate fam, something you've written of late, but it'd be nice to have you play something from that period. Okay. Uh, that means I have to look at my list. Okay, that's allowed. You can play whatever you want to play. I, that, that was just a suggestion. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, I, there's, uh, what's it called? Oh, okay. I'll play this. Actually, this is actually before that. This was Little Blue got signed before right. I came to LA, and we made a record that Roscoe Beck produced. That's uh, that's really one of my favorite projects that I've done. Uh, so I re-recorded this later, but and what is this called, Steve? It's called uh, unto, uh, it's called no, it's not it's not the right song. It's, <laughs> it's called Wait Until You Get Here. Okay. <clears throat> and I'm assuming you can hear me and the guitar. I can, and I think and Lee just said he can hear fine, so I'm guessing it's fine out there too. Well, he's deaf, so it doesn't... <laughs> <clears throat> he he uh, feels the sound waves at this point. <laughs> oh, by the way, that the, in the re-recording of this, um, Leland played the bass. <clears throat> oh, that's crazy! And Russ played the drums. So this this is, uh, but the original recording of this was from. Um, a record called Angels, Horses, and Pirates by Little Blue. at me through the eyes of a child she thinks I'm jaded and opinionated 
she sees me as a counterfeit bill And I revel in her innocence So I took her to a restaurant I ordered wine and souffle It didn't matter much about the conversation I'd said it all before this day I said Just wait until you get here And you'll see what I mean Just wait until you get here Through these rivers and streams I wandered into the Howling Wolf Cafe I saw a kid with a guitar Everyone was just loving him So in tune with where they are So I ate and I drank I tried to listen to his words And through the tapping of feet His youth was all I heard Just wait until you get here And you'll see what I mean Just wait until you get here Through these rivers and streams I'm no prophet, saint, or seer Dark to light, day to night, all comes clear. There's no need for fear. No need, no need for fear. an old man in Gramercy Park he was playing chess with a friend two thousand years were the memories with no beginning and no end he told me he was a philosopher a connoisseur of fine art but when I asked him for his name He said the state of man Weighed heavy on his heart He said Just wait until you get here And you'll see what I mean Just wait until you get here and streams Oh Wait until you 
you'll see what I Steve, what a gorgeous song that is. Wow. Beautiful. Uh, and you do have the voice of an angel. I always say it, but it's really true. Uh, you just blow my mind. Um, okay, so we have to talk about the immediate family and how, sure do. That sure how do. this came to... Okay, so I was shocked to see that you've known Lee for a long time. Who's the first one you met? Who's the first one you played with? Lee. And how long ago, how did that start, that relationship start? Um, well, I'm a, a NAM show devotee. Some people hate it. Some people I love, love it. it. Mm -hmm. I love it. For me to be around every instrument and piece of equipment that's ever been made and every <laughs> musician who's ever played is a, a thrill. So I've gone, unless I'm on the road, I, I've always gone to NAM. Right. Leland Sklar is the Pied Piper of NAM. Um, literally, people follow him around. I think he's the most recognizable guy at NAM, and he's such a gracious guy. He, he's he's uh, people love him, and he's he's just always been this gracious guy to people. He, he cares about that it's a mutual relationship. He doesn't have that air, and I'd seen him, uh, but now I had this record deal. And I saw him, as always, surrounded by people, signing autographs, talking. Well, what and year is this, Steve, approximately? I, I'd have to look it up. 14 years ago? 15, 15 years ago? Something like that? Mm -hmm. And I, I just said, I, all my life, one of my goals was to have that guy play on my record. And now I have a record deal. And I walked up to him, and I made my way through the crowd, and I said... I'm Steve Postel. You're going to play on my new record. And he said, okay. Oh, That's come it. on. It was that easy? <laughs> he said he's still waiting to get paid for it. <laughs> I paid that son of a bitch. <laughs> I didn't. Or anyway. So maybe, you, maybe not. So he, he played on your record. And so, so he did. He came and, uh, and, and, I, and I'm not kidding. I had wanted to play with Leland's for, since I was 14 years old. So okay. it was a, and, and uh, so he was the first one. So, um, and, uh, and through Leland, I had this iPad app that was a teaching app that was called On the Music Path. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, it for complicated reasons, it, it didn't continue, but it was very successful and it was, and we had, you know, Jackson Brown teaching his music, and and uh, Richard Thompson, and, and and Robin Ford, and Rusk, all these. One, it was a really incredible thing, and we and they wanted to do one on what does it mean to play in a rhythm section, and I called Lee and said, could you get Russ Kunkel? Do you think he'd want to do it? And so we did. Uh, we filmed the session for that. Uh, so I met Russ. Uh, the reason I think that the, the 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 kind of inception in a way for me of actually this thing happening was that 
Russ's son, Nathaniel Kunkel, is a brilliant engineer. Mm-hmm. And when I finished that record, I needed to find someone to mix it. Uh, and so we got all these different records that I liked and listened to them all. And the record that I thought sounded the most like mine and the most like I'd like mine to sound was a, a Graham Nash, David Crosby record. We looked at who mixed it. It was Nathaniel Kunkel. Called him up. He said he'd love to do it. And he mixed the record. Did an incredible job. Then he invited me to the Troubadour Union show at the Troubadour with James Taylor, Carol King, Russ Kunkel, Danny Korsmar, and Leland. So after the show, so I knew Russ and I knew Leland. Uh, and But Danny was a, I can't really articulate what the influence that man had on me because he wrote, he was the guitar player for James. And James was kind of the most... James and John Lennon were the two guys I sort of that made me write songs and play guitar. But Danny played guitar for him, and so the the guy I wanted to play like was Danny. Then he wrote these great songs. Then he produced these amazing records. So, so I had to introduce myself to Danny, and I just did. And it turns out we had a very very close mutual friend. He lived in the same town as she did, so it was instantly like connected. Mm-hmm. And when Danny moved out here, he started playing. I said, "Well, come play with this. I have this thing called Night Train Music Club, and it's just a, it's an, it's an all-star band. It's rotating okay. players. Or all-star band, which I saw many times with all these different people yeah. that you're talking about. I mean, Leland, Leland played with a bunch of, you know, it had about five. You know, the bass players were Leland Squire, Alfonso Johnson, you know, Bob Glaub." <laughs> You know, the drummers were Steve Ferroni, and it's, it was a pretty... I saw Mike Finnegan play with you guys, too. Yeah. Just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. It was around, Will Lee played, you know, it was... Yeah. Amazing. It ended, by the time it was, not that it's over forever, but with immediate family, I, I have my all-star band now. But, uh, so I said, Danny, we have this band, and it's it's really fun, and it's different every time. And Wait, so but he, you, you go into the story with Danny. How did you start that? Start what? Night Train Music Club. How oh, that was before, well before I met Danny. When I came out here and my band, Little Blue, broke up, uh-huh. um, I wanted to play, but I didn't want to make a band because bands, in general, it would mean that if one of the guys, the guys I wanted to play with were all the top guys. Right. And they were all on the road half the time. Right. So I wanted to play with Leland, but I, I knew I couldn't have a band where he was the only bass player because he'd never be around. Right. But if he was one of the guys so i made a band i named it night train music club and it was me and whoever was in town who i wanted right. to play with right we just started booking gigs and playing uh so danny started sitting in with that and so we learned somebody's baby and dirty laundry and all she wants to do is dance and machine gun kelly it was and, amazing and then what happened so danny i i may have the sequence a little bit wrong but I think what happened is this. I think that a label in Japan offered, re-released the section records, which was Danny, Leland, uh, Russ, and Craig Durge, instrumental 
kind of great, really cool fusion rock and roll music. Mm -hmm. They offered them a Billboard Live offered them a tour. And at this point, Danny and I, we were writing together with we my studio a bunch. We, we were really doing a lot of, we were writing, we were, we were playing in this gig. Uh, you did my book opening. Yeah, we did that. So Danny was in the studio. He said, yeah, yeah. We're, I said, how's it going with you guys going to go to Japan? I was excited because I loved the section and mm -hmm. had seen them. And he said, no, you know, at the timing, we just can't really get it together. And I don't really think I want to do instrumental it's not what i'm doing now and I, and I said well i just said to them i said well don't not go to japan let's take night train music club and call it danny kortzmar and friends let's go he goes i don't want to i can't do the the negotiation i said no no I'm, you go home i'll do it <laughs> i'll make it happen you know you don't have to do anything i'll just tell you when to show up at the airport but if they if they like the idea let's do it let's go to japan so it was uh, Bob Glaub, who's Jackson Brown's bass player, and Jeff Young, who's, who's, uh, who's Jackson Brown's keyboard player, but also played with Steely. They've all played with a lot of people. Right. And Steve Holly, who was in Wings, who I knew from Chain of Fools. So we did that gig, and either during that gig, it got solidified, or before Danny was offered this record deal. Now, how long ago was that, Steve? Approximately what year is that? How long ago? 10 years, 10 years ago, maybe, maybe nine. Mm -hmm. So Danny got offered a record deal in Japan to do his hit songs. So he and I started doing pre-production here at the studio. There was no band yet. It was just Danny was doing a record and he was, you know, we had a fun time in Japan and Night Train Music Club was fun. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, if I'm going to do a record, I... I want to do it with my favorite people in the world, which is Leland, Russ Conklin, Wadi Wachtel, and, and you. And we'll, and and Russ and Leland were not on tour at the same time. I, I, I don't think that had happened probably for years where they both were home at the same time. And Wadi was right. the next, but he was available the last day. So Wadi, I mean, so Russ, me, Leland, Danny and, and uh, Jim Cox, keyboard player, went into Jackson's studio. We cut three quarters of the song. Waddy came in the last day. We cut the last songs, and it was it was pretty obvious something special was happening. I mean, it was it was something else. And and for me to just see these guys in the same room with each other playing, let alone be in in their playing, was something else. And then the Japan guys offered us to tour behind this record we made. And uh, Danny said, well, yeah, let's do it. And we're, we're the immediate family. <laughs> and it's been, you know, as, as I, we've talked a long time, but as you can see, my life has been like music school, Broadway shows, jingles, Chain of Fools, Little Blue, the studio with Ferroni. And, and then the, and to, to, this is something that Russ wrote the other day in a, text to us, and I, I've been thinking the same thing. He beat me to writing it. Everything I've ever done in my career has prepared me to be in this band. You know, it gives, it gives me goosebumps and makes me cry because I've talked to Lee about this as well. And he had, when we talked, he had said, you know, if anything could have been different in his life. And this is, 
when you guys first started, I guess, or maybe even, anyway, he said the one thing he would have loved to have had was would have been one band like the Beatles, like the Stones, that he could have just had this one band and had it be everything. And like you guys are that everything for each other. And it's just a beautiful thing to see. It's uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, one, one of the things, there's a couple of things that all, for me, yeah, my I loved seeing James Taylor with these guys, and James was a big influence, and Jackson was a big influence, and you know now I'm working on a James a project with James Taylor and Carol King, and Jackson and I have played, and we're friends, and you know so everything's come around. But but the real thing that was my heart was the Beatles, and then the bands, which the band, and right. Little Feet, and I would, I just I loved it so much that. Like those bands where everybody in the band was a powerful force and they put that force together and they made this amazing thing. And I, I had it for in ways for a little with those other two bands, but it didn't quite push through and then people left. I get to do that. I get to look around and go, there's no one else. No one that I would pick to play any of these instruments or be with anywhere ever in the world. This is it. And this is a band for me like those bands. Everybody brings to the table something special, unique. We did, early on we got offered a gig at a great festival in Vancouver. And Russ was out with Lyle Lovett. And we made the now stupid decision to do the gig without him and get another drummer, wonderful drummer. And after the, nothing, he was incredible. He learned every, after that we went, no. This is a band. Everybody has to be there. If they're not there, we don't play. I love this. From now on, forever. This is what this is. It, this is a synchronicity of five guys who have different relationships. We all have different relationships individually. I mean, it's a really unique, I have, I have a friendship with every guy that's different than the friendship with the other guys, and then we all and they all have that, and then we have the one all together. And uh, what can I say? It's a dream come true. Okay, so give us a little uh, of what's coming up for you guys, and then I'm going to have you play us out with a, with one of your songs that you've written for the immediate family. Uh, we have a lot coming up, boy. We we have. Wait, how can they find your? Um, your TIF uh, talk. The, the Immediate Family YouTube channel. Okay. Yeah, that, a lot of stuff's up there. And there is a website. It's called theimmediatefamilyband.com. It's, it's for some reason very hard to find. But the Immediate Family YouTube channel is not. Is the Immediate Family YouTube channel TIF or is it the Immediate Family? It's the Immediate Family. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, there's lots of stuff up there. All our music videos. And there's going to be more and more on there. Right. Uh, what's coming up? We have on August 26th or 7th, we have a record coming out on Quarto Valley Records that we finished right before the pandemic. Wow. So we had to shelve it. And we're doing a, a live, a streaming record release party, which which the details to, to be soon announced. Okay. We are working on, then, the amazing thing is uh, they've, they've finished filming a documentary about the band. 
It's finished? Okay, I have to have well, Dan. Well, the, the filming is finished. Right, right, okay. The editing is happening right now. Right. Uh, this is a documentary about, it's called The Immediate Family, and it's about all these careers and the band and how it came together, and, the, and it's, the, you know, I think I'm allowed to say who's being interviewed in it. If I'm not, um, I guess I'll get in trouble. But it... I, I think mentioned things on the air so I think you're okay I think we're okay but they interviewed Neil Young and Stevie Nicks and Jackson Brown James Taylor and uh, uh, Keith Richards and you know uh, yeah Linda Ronstadt and Carol King and it's 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 amazing what and Denny Tedesco um, is the director he did a movie called The Wrecking Crew which was about his father Tommy Tedesco and all those guys mm-hmm and this is a great natural progression for him because Danny and Leland and Russ and Waddy really took over the session scene where those guys left off. Mm-hmm. And and the the little twist on it is, and yet here we are now, so it's all the history, a lot right. of amazing history. Right. But but there's still they're a band now. Not only that, but check it out, you know. So I'm hoping for great things from that. So that's going to come out sometime in the fall. We're starting to tour again in November. Thank God. We're playing a few dates in LA. Then we're going to East Coast. Where are you, where are you guys going to be playing in LA? Uh, the Coach House, November 3rd. Libero in Santa Barbara, November 7th. The Canyon Club, November 8th. And then we go to the East Coast. Um, and uh, they're adding dates all the time. And, and, Has the uh, Japan tour been set? We just talked to the guy yesterday. We were talking about spring, so it's it's back in the because Japan had a had a a, a resurgence. Yeah. They had a, another unfortunate COVID wave, mm-hmm. so they shut back down. Mm-hmm. But they but now it's gonna they're getting the vaccine. It's gonna so hopefully uh, spring, and then a lot of then we have another record. We just started working. We're we just worked at Jackson studio last two weeks ago. And so we have another record ready to go. And then we have a third record, which is the the cover record. Danny always says we're a cover band that plays originals. <laughs> and uh, so we're doing a record of those songs of the, of the hit songs, So we can have a record of it. If you want to hear those songs the way we do it, here it is, you know, Fantastic. So you know, that's what then we're doing. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask one more question before I have you play us out, because you have a big relationship with David Crosby. How, how did that happen, Steve? And is your relationship with him now, having seen the doc, I've seen the documentary, do you still have a relationship with him now? I was at his house a week ago. Well, I'm happy somebody does. Good. Um, how did you meet David, and how did that relationship start? <clears throat> uh... David had a band called CPR, mm-hmm. which was Pivar, yeah. Crosby, Pivar, and Raymond. James Raymond is the son he didn't know he had until James was 30. And James turned out to be an uber musician who has become David's primary co-writer and producer. And Little Blue was, you know, we were very successful for a a band that wasn't successful. I mean, we... We made good money. We toured all over the world, and we were playing, and we were we were the, you know, rock stars in Aspen. That was our base. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, I was talking to Jeff, and and we said, you know, it'd be, I I could put together a night of Little Blue and CPR at the Wheeler Opera House, which is this stunning opera house, but 600 seat theater. Um, and they said, let's do it. So that's how we met. We met on that on that those those two nights that we played there. Then I got to be friendly with James, and James and I write together, and we produce together. Uh, we, we, the three of us wrote a song that's going to be on the new record, um, and we've played. We're gonna, we have some other gigs we're going to play. You know, so it's just a, it's just been a, a long time, uh, friendship and and musical relationship. Um, you know, so the immediate family is going to be the immediate family with no substitutions when it can. But you guys are still all going to do your other things that you do. Yeah, I mean, kind of have to, you know. I mean, it's, you know, Waddy's not going to not play with Stevie Nicks. You know, Leland's going to play with Phil Collins. These are beautiful things, and it's part of what makes us who we are. You know, it's it's part of it. Yes. And we just work around it, you know. Uh, I mean, I think Russ just told me today he's going. To, he's doing a gig in October with Lyle. Love it. And, and that's fine. I mean, it's good. It's, it's actually it's what we are. Right. And uh, so... Even if we were like the most successful band in the world, I think we'd still want to play sometimes with our people. I think so. You know, I mean, look, Stevie Nicks is in Fleetwood Mac, and then she does Stevie Nicks with Waddy, you know, and they both exist. My friend Warren Haynes was in the Allman Brothers, and he had Government Mule, and, and they, you know, he didn't want to give one up for the other and didn't have to. It's yeah. It's wonderful. All right, so Steve, play us out with something that that you've written for the immediate family that's coming out, or is or is. This just came out. I have to. Here we go. Uh, this is the latest single, um, which I had written, but we re we re everything we do becomes different. That's why the covers of the hits are so interesting because they're they don't sound like. It's our way we do it, so. I wanted. So I was interested, it, like this is a song I wrote before, but but I, we, I wanted to immediate familyize it. Familyze it. <laughs> so we, we, we re-recorded it for the last EP. And uh, And it was the last single and the last video. It's a really, really cool video, really nice video. You, you guys make great videos, and I love that there's usually a touch of a comedic element. There, there's usually a visual that's interesting. The only comedic element in this video is that Leland played a double a bass with two necks. Well, you know, it, Lee does some funny, all of your videos, he seems to do something a little off of center that's fun. Yeah, it's strange, you know, for such a serious guy that he sometimes is off the center. Isn't that strange? <laughs> All right. <clears throat> the lamps are low All down my street Moon in the cracks Boots on my feet I walk to Maine Close to the wall 
Jimmy's closing down P.S. last call 3.45 coming through I got to stop thinking about you About you A clock is ticking The time ain't right No one's talking In the middle of the night I lose your number Forget your name Oh, I lose myself When I play this game 3.45 coming through I got to stop thinking about you Tire is screeching, hound all weeps, my bones are tired, but I cannot sleep. My ears start to ring when the diesel hums. Just a few more hours till the morning comes. 3:45 coming through. I got to stop thinking about you. Take a breath, two years go by Everything changes, everything dies I get caught up in yesterday Oh, maybe tomorrow it'll fade away 3.45 coming through I got to stop thinking about you 345 coming through I got to stop thinking Yeah, I got to stop thinking Well, I got to stop thinking by you By you Oh, by you even tell you how much I love that song. I'm so glad you played it. And I love the way you play slide guitar. I'm a slide guitar sucker whore. I loved it. Steve Postel, thank you so much for doing this. It's always a treat to uh, to sit down and chat with you. And well, you know, one thing we didn't say, we didn't say how we met. <laughs> so, okay, you tell the story. So I was playing at that Red Lion. He had hired me. I told that story. And I was wandering down the street, and this beautiful blonde went up the stairs and started chatting me up. And before I knew it, she'd hired me to play at the Rock and Roll Cafe. 
And you know, I'm really glad you brought that up before we go, because I want to say, Steve, I realized this last night, I've booked a lot of venues and I've done a lot of things that haven't been venues like my house and doing my book launch and all you are the one musician. This gives me goosebumps is going to make me cry. You have played every single thing I have ever done. You are the one musician that has done it all, all with me. And hmm. I thank you for that. Well, I, I thank you for, uh, you know, all the, all those gigs and, and for that, especially that first one, because I think we had just played, you know, we had just started being that band. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking to do it more and more and more. And uh, you were on regular rotation at the Rock and Roll Cafe. It was fun. What a, what a fun time to be in New York, man. It was a great time. And, and I know you did. I, I did. I, I True Blue. I, all those. All True those. Blue, yeah. Oh, what yeah. was the one on that was on the top floor of a building? That was a cool one. I know there was the marquee and there was, uh, yeah, it was I think you had to go, it was I think it was up high anyway there was one that you did that, that was really cool but yeah so I wanted to mention that's that we go back to when we were just little itty bitty rockers bitty kids thank you so much for doing this it was a real treat as it always is and I'm I cannot wait to come and hear you guys uh, play live and um, soon so looking forward to the day Love you. Take care, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.